This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with former professional footballer Mark Wilson. The former Man United, Middlesbrough and Doncaster player discusses the companies a founder of Beyond Pulse and how the use of analytics can help youth development, the psychological challenges he faced during his playing career and his search for consistency in performance, and what was so unique about the Man United culture under Sir Alex Ferguson. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, make sure you share it with family and friends and be sure to subscribe. I hope you enjoy. Good to go. So first of all, Mark, thanks very much for jumping on um, on, on, I think, Tuesday morning, your time, Tuesday afternoon, my time. Obviously, Larry Sunderland, who was recently on the podcast, put us in touch. Um, first thing, how are you? Housing stateside, are you and the family all well? Yeah, we're good. Thanks, Michael. You know, it's it's been a an interesting twelve months, but um, you know, on on self reflection, it, it's been a wonderful time to connect with lots of different people. Larry being one of them, of course, who's connected us. Um, lots of positives. The family are healthy and well, and. Um, despite some of the doom and gloom sometimes it's easy to get carried away within the news and tabloids um it's been an, a really positive year for 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 me professionally and personally perfect so obviously um some people may know you some people may not if you could just kind of explain kind of your journey i guess and up mm. to the point you are now i guess a snapshot and then we'll go more in depth into some of it later on we'll do the thirty thousand foot view um so yeah, I, I began um, began my professional playing career at uh, Manchester United. Um, you know, as, a, as a 14 year old, I signed as a schoolboy and, and made my debut as an 18, 19 year old. Uh, I was fortunate enough to play 10 first team games, which um, is terrible in three years when you think about it, of ratio of, of games to years. But trying to remove some of the world's best at that point was, uh, was difficult. Learned a hell of a lot. Uh, very fortunate to work with some incredible coaches and managers in, in my time there. And also had a stint on loan at Wrexham, which was really my baptism of fire into the professional uh, men's football world under Brian Flynn, which really became a catalyst for me to go back to United and play in the first team. I was then sold to Middlesbrough with Steve McLaren, went there with Steve McLaren and a teammate of mine, Jonathan Green, in, in 2001. Again, you know, 30, 40 appearances in, in five years is, is not good statistics for sure. And it probably tells you a lot when you look at my stats, uh, my, my career. I was a late maturer for sure, which we can get into later on in the podcast. Um, then I went to the US for two years, played for M uh, in the MLS for, for FC Dallas. Wonderful experience. It gave me obviously the passion to come back here, which is where I am now. Uh, but I did return back home to play for Doncaster Rovers for the remainder of my career uh, with a couple of, I think it was Oxford, really was coming to the end of my time. Just had a month or two there uh, playing and then retired, came out to New York City, Manhattan as a director of coaching. Uh, again, great, great learning curve for three years. And uh, now, uh, well, four years ago, now five years ago, I co-founded a company called Beyond Pulse. Uh, with two other members, Mark andre Meyer and Michael Sopp, um, which is very much focused on 
transforming coach behavior, um, kind of empowering players and coaches to to have an objective insight into their, their training and practice, uh, training and game habits. Perfect. So, I mean, we'll, we'll loop back round to the playing career, I think, a little bit later on. Um, I'm sure there are loads of brilliant insights and experiences you have within that. Let's start with the Beyond Pulse um, uh, business. So in terms of for you, what is currently, what, well, obviously you've explained briefly there what, what the company does. Um, how did you find it? How did you come up with the idea? And then I guess from a um, more detailed standpoint, if you're looking at the objectives to make people more objective around performance, etc., how do you go about doing that? Sure. Um, you know, it, it was never something I, I envisaged myself doing, starting my own business and certainly not doing it while I was living in Manhattan and, and now in New Jersey. Um, one of the, the other co-founders, Michael Sopp, uh, was going through his uh, master's degree program in sports pedagogy uh, at Ohio University and he actually worked with me in New York City as a travel coordinator so we were we were side by side for a couple of years he went back to to the university to finish his master's and he called me one day and said Mark I've I've got an idea or I've met actually I've met somebody who's got an idea to use wearable technology in in new sports he said we want to we want to put heart rate straps on on new soccer players in, in the US and I said how young he said you know 10 and up so I said no thanks um that doesn't sound like something I want to do um initially and he said no 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 it's for it's for coach development and that really had me intrigued because the three years I'd spent as a director of coaching probably very underprepared coming out of the, the professional football bubble and into a job where you have to build curriculums, develop people, um, you know, develop methodology and value systems, and, and create buy-in. Um, you know, in, in a in a soccer structure, youth soccer structure in the US, that's very very difficult to navigate. Sometimes, lots of different layers, lots of different leagues. You know, a, a country the size of a continent. Um, so, learned a lot doing that, and then when when we kind of approach this product or this idea with the third co-founder Mark andre Maye, who it was his initial idea um we thought about the level of coaching across the usa and the impact it was having on one particular data point which was uh, this 70 percent youth sports dropout rate by the time players are 13 or youth athletes are 13 and 14 what was contributing to that and there were a number of things so we looked at a study uh, from the Aspen Institute of Sports that, that really kind of drilled down on why youth athletes are dropping out. And, and a lot of it is down to poor experience. So what could we create using wearable technology to help assist coaches in, in monitoring their uh, the way they plan, the way they prepare, the way they self-reflect? So we basically decided to use a, a smart belt, a heart rate monitor that has a, an accelerometer in it so we can measure things like distance and speed. And, um, you know, our gold metric, which comes from movement, which is called active participation. So it's how active a player is within a 90 minute practice. And we give it as a percentage or, or a minute or a time frame. Um, we also had to develop a way to turn those smart belts on to record that data. So we decided to use these wonderful things that everybody carries and 
Um, we failed a lot to begin with, but eventually that our tech team that, that created both apps and the platform for us, um, they developed a, a player app and a coach app that could connect and sync, connect to the belts in under 10 seconds and sync the data in about the same amount of time. But more importantly, connect to 30, 40, 50 players at a time with one tap of a button and uh, we were off and running. Um, so we were able to collect this data. I would, I would say the core of how we operate and why we do what we do is to give the coach the opportunity after every practice or one to set an objective. How active do I expect my players to be within my 90 minute practice? How do I plan that? Is my session design going to be efficient? How many times might I step into coach? How long might I speak for or deliver for within each coaching point? Um, and can I keep the flow and the dynamic um, and put the player at the center of the learning journey um, to ensure that the experience that parents are paying for is one that is, is developmentally appropriate and a good one, obviously for players. Um, so in essence, we, we developed this metric that is, is transformational and we're seeing it across now 9,000 players, sorry, eight and a half thousand players in the US uh, and Canada. Um, we've branched out to Germany. Uh, we're in England and we're in Chile. So we're, we're expanding internationally and at the heart of all of this, all of the other metrics lies active participation, which really gives a coach a, a, an insight into his own development and performance and the engagement of his players within his sessions. So I assume, you know, for a lot of coaches, that would have been the first time using that sort of information. Um, I would imagine also for some of them, it would be quite a shock to see how much time people aren't participating or stood still in their practices and stuff. So how did you go about um, challenges uh, or challenging coaches skillfully around that? Because I imagine if you go in and just go, you're doing it all wrong, I've got the thing, there's probably going to be some pushback. So how did you go around skillfully challenging those practices? That's one of the most important questions we had to ask and answer ourselves before we actually started going into club environments and you know for me personally 130,000 air miles later um, over 130 clubs visited probably 100 colleges as well we had to make sure that one if we were going to get buy-in this needed to be seen as a support tool it needed to be seen as a resource so if you can't get on coaching licenses if you can't afford to get on them or if you don't have the time because your schedule's so busy, how are we providing you a layer of insight? Simply, albeit we don't want you to be overwhelmed by data and numbers and metrics. How can we simply help you tweak and adjust certain aspects of your session design, your delivery, and then self-reflect on that to, to create a good experience for your players? And we know there are different levels too. So if you're in a tactical periodization, physical periodization, elite level environment, we know that, I'll throw a number out there, let's say you want once or twice a week your team to be 70 to 80% in, in, a, in a green zone, so highly active within your session, which would mean, you know, 70 to 80 minutes of a 90 minute practice. We know on a Friday that might be slightly lower if, you're, if you have a game on a Saturday. So you're not going to be expected to be at a high level of AP all week long. Um, you can reduce AP and still keep intensity, 
but the AP score itself can become a little bit lower based on your periodized plan. Um, so there's context that supports it. So I would go in and speak to technical staff and we would gauge which level, what licensing each of these coaches kind of had. And we would pitch it as um, a support and resource tool. So we want to help you improve your process. We're here to support the director of coaching and the technical director put his time where it, he needs to put it for the most impact. So for him, it's a management tool and for the coach, it's a support tool. Um, it was difficult at first because when coaches who have never used data look at our product, and by the way, we are the simplest version of wearable tech on the market. And for us, we're still trying to simplify it. We're not catapult. We're not stat sports, wonderful products. We're not player maker. They give, you know, 10, 12, 15 metrics. We want you to operate around one or two. And we're finding that if you do that, you can then work into the others if you want to get into the weeds or you can just operate with one or two. So active participation might be one and an internal measurement heart rate might be another. So you can work very simply off those two. Um, once a coach sees uh, the active participation score, let's say we go for a demo and I ask the coach, what AP score do you think you might achieve tonight in your, in your practice? And I guess 70%, 80%. I'm like, this is brilliant. Great. Love that you're setting the bar high. And then they come off the field and this is, this is where you have to be careful. They see a 45 or 50% score and they realize that their players have been inactive for nearly 45 minutes or 50% of their training time. It takes them a little bit of time to compute and analyze and, absorb that but then we move straight into right these are the good things i saw in your practice and because we can break ap down per activity i can say look at in the possession game look at how your active participation actually went through the roof and you could see by the momentum so you've got your visual subjective and now you've got the objective to back up the good things you're doing if you can transfer that method if you can transfer that moment into other parts of your activities your AP score will naturally go up. Um, and it's always with a focus on the player being the focus, not the coach. So once we deliver it in, in a way where we are here to support and guide and develop, we get a lot of buy-in from coaches because then they start to, to see the value in the, in the product itself. In terms of the benefits that you've seen um, obviously, you said there you've kind of got a relatively good sample size in terms of clubs and players that have got access to it. Um, have you seen big impacts on the way coaches coach and the way players are being dealt with and what they're able to input or output within the system? We have. In, in, in particular, there was one club in, in the mid, uh, called Midwest United in Michigan who onboarded around 900 players into our products and, and that that was a, a big number to onboard immediately that's a lot of different age groups a lot of different ability levels and we do monthly graphs as well so you don't actually need to always go into our back-end system and go through go through each metric we produce a very simple report so you can get a kind of macro overview so we we produced an 11-week active participation report for about 25 teams for the doc and what you could see, it's color-coded. So in, in dark orange, 
you would see low AP all the way into dark green, which is high AP active participation. So we saw about five or six weeks in to the 11 weeks, a change and there was more green coming into view for all of the teams. And we, we checked in, we offer a service as well. So we're always checking in to see where we can add value for, for the players and staff and parents. We said, look, what, what happened? I asked the director of coaching, what change would in your process? He said, well, Mark, I was, we were having coach ed sessions and all of a sudden, let's say, take a U12 age group, for instance, that have all have the same lesson plan. Well, why do you have 75 active participation, 75% and I only have 68%? What condition and constraint did you put on the possession activity? What did you change in a small sided game for your AP to go up? and your tempo to go up. So all of a sudden it wasn't him steering the ship. It was the coaching group now asking each other questions about their practices and how they could tweak certain things to improve the engagement levels and the participation levels of the players. And for us, that was, that was a highlight, certainly of, of the past two years, when we can see that transformational kind of sea of green, as we call it, um, into high levels of AP. Um, that, that is a transformational moment in a club. And when, when it's underpinned by a process, um, I'm sure it's, it's a better experience for player, parent and coach as well. And why do you think on, on the player level, why do you think it's so important for them to have this ball rolling time or active participation time? Why is it so important to have it high so that they're engaged more often? I think there's there's two pieces to this, Michael, and obviously having the visual on on so if you can video and have have the data side by side and, and put it together, that's that's a perfect smart environment in my opinion. So for a player, if he if he wants to dig a little deeper under the surface level of, you know, why was my AP score? And I'll break it down into an activity. So let's say we had an overall score of seventy percent but my warm-up was 50%, my possession game was, was 65, and my small-sided game was up in the 80s. So in this 10-minute block or 15-minute block, I was 85 or 80% active within that small-sided game. One, it shows that, and we see this a lot, whenever players do move into some kind of small-sided game, the AP goes up. There's a level of engagement. So when you think of four-block practice compared to play-practice-play, I'm in favour of a games-based model because we see the data um, certainly, and, and if you measure the AP up with heart rate and workload in small-sided games or any type of game-based activity, we see every level go up. So there's a level of engagement that increases. And I think when we, for players to understand why they're highly engaged, we can start to ask different questions. So I'll, as an example, in a small-sided game, We've got a midfielder. Why was I 85% active in this 10 minute block? Well, actually there was a two touch condition. I was one of the neutral players in, in of, of three. Uh, we were in a midfield three and I received the ball a ton from my fullbacks and my center backs. I was able to transition the ball through thirds. I was able to find space and get on the ball and play at a high tempo. And this is what it looks like in terms of a number. So we encouraged coaches and players not to just look at the number as a number or the data point as a number. What are the behaviors and characteristics and the actions that underpin it? So now when I see my AP number, 
let's let's have a, a characteristic or, or a behavior on it. What does adaptability look like for me as a midfielder? Well, it means that in this small-sided game, I was able to receive the ball 10 to 15 times from my fullbacks, from my CBs, and play forward passes. Okay, I was able to find different spaces um, in and around their midfield to allow me to play forward. So now we're going, this is what adaptability looks like. This is, this is the number that's attached to it. And this is what my performance and engagement looks like based on this uh, little ecosystem of, of data and insight. Um, so I think it's always important for players to understand why they do what they do so they can replicate it. And so where do you see the holy grail of this? Um, where do you see, like, in, in your pinnacle in terms of this use of the product, what would you like to see at the very, if you had, like, a plan A, everything utopia of this is how our products use do you know what that would look like another good question i would have to say it's tiered because if i think of 10 year olds to 13 year olds there's no reason why that age group shouldn't have a high level of ap four sessions a week games-based approach get everybody moving get them asking self-reflective questions based on their AP score that they wouldn't normally ask if they went home, car ride home with mum and dad. How was practice today? It was good. They scored a couple of goals, made a few nice passes. Yeah, it was good. Okay, that, that's great that you, you, you're engaging and you're answering it surface level. But I think the more you start to understand why you do what you do, you build a passion and a love for it. So for the 10 to 13 year olds, the holy grail across the entire US or even world for us as we expand would be to make sure coaches are delivering games-based approaches with a level of AP that is 70% and above. Now, there's context and there's, there's perspective and there's different lenses around that. So it's not as linear and as simple. But we definitely see, and especially being on site, whenever we see levels of AP that high in the younger age groups, there is a smile on faces. There is a tempo to the practice. There is an engagement from the player in wanting to learn and listen in the small moments you step in as a coach to break up the play. Or if you get really, um, if you're really focused and intentional, can you deliver your coaching points dynamically? Can you feed information on and off by either pulling a player off and speaking to him for 20 seconds and passing that information on? Or can you coach dynamically in, in 20 second blocks within a, within a, uh, within a game or a small sided game? So you're not breaking up uh, the momentum and flow. So that would be one piece. From, from a more elite level, so when we're going into 15s and above, and I'll throw some, uh, some letters at you here, ECNL, EDP, NPL, um, or MLS Next, which are all high levels of play in the US. If we can create a product that encourages coaches to self-reflect, that encourage them to analyze um, their own behavior first before they look outwardly and start to assess where, where development curves and performance um, can be improved. If we look here first, that's a huge milestone for us, in our opinion. And I know a lot of coaching licenses preach this, self-reflection, mm -hmm. look inwardly first. 
but when I go into lots of different environments, and this is even with elite level license coaches, A levels, uh, A level uh, license coaches, there's still a reluctance to look inwardly first and say, what did I get wrong in my session today? One, what were my objectives? Two, how did I impact those objectives? Three, was my session design appropriate and seamless? And four, did my delivery interfere with practice or did it complement practice? So on an elite level, if we can get coaches to look inwardly and answer some of those questions first and be more objective about the environment they create and their methodology and philosophy around player development and player performance, I think that will be a huge win for us as a company. And alluding to something you said there, I guess one of the real benefits of the product is the fact that because you've got the level of simplicity to begin with, it's something that can be integrated in um, at a level that's not too challenging for coaches. Um, I know, as you alluded to earlier, kind of some other stuff where I look at the statistics, I'm like, I wouldn't even know how to engage with these statistics in a way that's going to be relevant to my session. Whereas the statistics you're using, it seemed like actually it's a very simple way, a really simple consideration when I'm trying to put a practice together or I'm thinking about game time, etc. I can focus on this one statistic, allow that to maybe affect my practice and affect my session design and how I'm going to do my intervals and stuff. And then if you have real success with this, it might be then you integrate more and more statistics. But at the base level, if you can grasp getting this AP into your session plans and into your coaching behaviors and when you're going to intervene and how long for, et cetera. Actually, that's a really good starting place to be in. It's a great point. And, and you've hit the nail on the head. It, it's, you can just use AP. It's one of our seven metrics and, and how you, you would use it in a system is everything's timestamped. So we can see when there's a drop off in activity or movement, and you can measure the time from the dip in the, in, from the peak to the trough and when you get going again. If that can be one of two things, a transition from one activity to another or the coach stopping to make a point. Now we see time and time again, coaches think they're only speaking for a minute or a minute and a half and three and a half minutes to four minutes pass in some of the coaching points because they haven't intentionally planned beforehand that I don't want to interfere in this possession game too much. So I'm only going to make two, two coaching points and they're going to be a minute long. And I've thought about the language and it's in line with the curriculum and it's in line with our principles and sub principles. And I'm going to deliver it clearly and concisely. And I'm going to see how it manifests itself in the player's actions and behaviors. Once I've delivered it, I don't need to micromanage it. If somebody gets it wrong two minutes after we restart, I need to let it, percolate i need to let them absorb the information i need to see actions and behaviors to see if they've grasped it and it might not take them it might not take them two minutes it might take them eight minutes ten minutes it might take them a whole week before you see it again it might take a month but it's being patient enough and knowing when to deliver each coaching point and how frequently and with what language and when to reinforce that I think determines how long it stays up here. Um, so for me, if, if you, if you just used active participation on any level, 
because we do also give a low, moderate and vigorous zone. So you don't want AP in a low zone. You know, if you had 70% AP and, you know, 80% of that 70% was in a low zone, you know, your, your session was at a low tempo. But if it's, you know, 80% was in a high zone, brilliant. Or a vigorous zone, that's great. So if you just used AP and said Tuesday would be our most game-like AP, so we're looking for 75, 80% and above. Thursday could be similar. Friday's going to be slightly lower and gave yourself a target to hit. Um, the other nuance to this, just to kind of shoehorn this in, you could have a 75% level of active participation, but when you look at, player by, look at it player by player, you might have a group of players that were actually higher than 75% overall. So they could be in the 80s. And there might be some disparity to the late developing end of your group. So you might then see some 50s. The other advantage to this is if you see players that were in the 50s from your session, so they're 30% outside of what your most active players were, I need to figure out a way to create a session that for at least a percentage or, or an activity, they're going to be the focal point of that activity. So they don't disconnect. Oh, it's always coached looking at the top end of the group. It's always coached saying, yeah, the, the session went well because the best players in the group perform well. If I'm going to bring equity to my coaching, using active participation to then put the, the, the late developing group at the forefront who need a little bit more of my time, I can see it clearly using AP. So it also brings a different lens to how I rate my session as a success or failure or needs to be improved so this sounds like the passion for this product etc probably comes from your own personal experiences growing up to a certain degree is that correct it has yeah for sure it has an influence and it, i know it's the same for michael and mark andre the other two co-founders we one when i look at that youth sport dropout rate number it does make me sad you know and even if you don't have kids you were a kid once. You know what a good and bad experience is. You know when coach steps in every session too often because he wants to make it about himself. And he's like, no, I've, I've got these coaching points. I've got to get them out. I planned for this, so I've got to do this. Well, what about in the moment you adapt? Because you don't need to mess with the flow and rhythm of, of a possession game because it's good. Your coaching point doesn't matter at that point to some extent. Can you find a way not to interfere? And compliment so i've had sessions and i've had coaches and a, a ton of a ton of varied experiences from youth all the way up to first team level and by the way in my humble opinion ap would work in a first team level it wouldn't be accepted right now because there's a lot of very traditional mindsets out there but it would be intriguing to see how ap would reflect first team sessions um so Yes, for sure. Um, some of my more negative experiences of being stood around, of being spoken at too, for too long, too many times, um, have definitely impacted, one, me as a coach. Um, and I've gone through my spells of actually replicating how I was coached in some instances, and thinking, you know, kind of making the same mistakes and doing the same things that sometimes I didn't like because it came from a first team environment. Um, transitioning into actually what, what did I love as a player? 
um, who do I want to be as a coach? And who can I learn from also moving forward uh, on the field and off the field? Because I think this, this can get into this. There's been lots of different influences on um, how I like to try and coach. Um, but for sure, it's, it's had an impact on this metric uh, and why we're so passionate about it. Um, being a transformational metric within new sports and, and new soccer. And it, I'd imagine um, for you, obviously, you'd have had different experiences going over there and being kind of a head of coach and director of coaching role. And you would have seen different people have different styles, which I think is important along, sure. along with having this type of metric. How challenges, challenging is it for you, either in that head, or, head of coaching or director of coaching role, or in your current role where you're going in and seeing maybe individuals or teams that don't necessarily have the same values as you, but you're trying to support them with this side of the product. Cause I'd imagine that's kind of a you know, tug of war almost in, in how you feel. It is. And, and look, parents, it's like, I guess it's like paying for a private school or paying for, for anything. Parents in this pay to play model, they can pay anywhere from $2,000 to, to $8,000 a year for their kids to play soccer. So it's now perceived as a, as a professional environment because coaches are getting paid, paid well in some instances. Um, there's, a, there's an organizational structure from a technical director to a DFC executive directors. It's, it's a billion dollar business or sports is a billion dollar industry over here. And the reality is there are multiple, uh, there are different groups and different layers of coaching staff. Some are just on, on the beginning of their journey who want to want to learn and adapt. Some, you know, there's a diversity. So you might have Brazilians and El Salvadorians and Ecuadorians and English people and Americans who have all seen the game very differently, which is critically important, by the way. I love that diversity because when you bring that into the melting pot and you're able to experience and share perspectives and ideas and thoughts you know some great things some wonderful things come out of that um but when you've got different coaches on on different licenses and at different points in their learning journey to align methodology and value systems and then get a consistency of performance of coach performance that manifests itself in in a a really engaging, fun, enjoyable experience for the players. It's difficult. So the challenge is, can we build a curriculum and a language and a methodology and a vision for, for player development and player performance, coach performance and coach development that is um, clear, concise, efficient, impactful, but also represents the diversity within the group and the uniqueness of each individual. Um, it's a challenge. It's difficult because you're right. We, we all want to be authentic. We all have a coaching personality um, and our strengths and weaknesses. And we can all be very different, but at the same time, this culture needs to underpin what our, what our mission is. So there are some things that do have to be set in stone. And while we want to be 
adaptable and flexible at Beyond Pulse. We have to draw a line in the sand at some point and say, well, actually, there's evidence and, and, and we want to be evidence-based at a games-based approach and a well-thought-out lesson plan. So what are your objectives? What's your session design? What's your delivery going to be? Is it based on your culture and your values as a club? Is it in line with your vision and mission statement, your methodology and your philosophy? What are the behaviors that you're going to adhere to and look to develop within your players so it aligns? We do have to draw a line in the sand somewhere and say, this is what we stand for as a company. And this is our why. So going into clubs and challenging that is an interesting experience, but we are, we are making some headway. And one thing you've mentioned there, I think it'd be really interesting to get an example if you've got it, is around the diversity of uh, backgrounds. Is there anything in particular where you've had someone from a different country or continent, etc., where they've challenged you on something that maybe we do culturally normally, um, where they've gone, actually, this is what we do, and you thought that's so simple, but so much more effective. Is there anything that springs to mind in that sure, type of context? Yeah. Um, um, I had a, a South American coach who, um, very good coach, wonderful, wonderful person, um, wanted to learn, keen to learn, but had some really concrete values and beliefs around uh, the environment he'd grown up in. And, and isolated technique uh, practices were, he believed in them. Um, and it's not that I don't believe in them. I think they have a, a space within a player's development not necessarily in group training maybe it's part of an idp or time spent away from the environment is where you can do that stuff um but he kept referencing um first team sessions of, of the environment he, he lived in so it was argentina and he would reference boca juniors he'd reference river play and he'd reference different different clubs and first teams and he said, well, wh why, do, why do professional first teams do passing sequences? You know, um, he said, why do, why do they do isolated, you know, passing one, one to another, different techniques and practicing, you know, different uh, ways to receive the ball on the move? And I said, look, that, that has a place for sure. But for me, it's refinement at a first team level. It's almost a way just to get that touch and feel because they're now at a level at a competency where they're just building themselves into practice before they, before they start um, or maybe a, a focal point in a topic. Um, when you're developing youth players, if let's give a, a passing sequence for, for example, or a passing pattern, he met, he referenced checking his shoulder. I said, well, why do you check your shoulder? I said, well, to scan. Scan for what? I said, well, whatever's going on in the game, movement, you know, pressure. It's like, good. And so in a passing pattern, when you ask players to check their shoulder, what are they looking for? It's like, well, it's a habit. I said, well, it's a habit, but will it stay in there? Will it become a habit if they're just flicking their head around and seeing empty space or, or a building wall? I said, so what if... What if you were able to remove that isolated practice, uh, technical practice or that, that passing pattern and build it into a possession activity where they were under pressure to receive the ball or they had to, you can still try and create the pattern in a rondo 
or in a possession activity and get them to see that pattern and play that pattern. But now it's under pressure. Now they are scanning and they're seeing space, but players condensing space and pressure coming to them, that 360 degree view. And they're now developing the actual skill to use in a game. And over time, once they've developed and refined that skill, when they do get to a, an older age group or a level where passing patterns might become a part of your training, uh, don't you think they'll find it easier? Because now it is just refinement. So it'll be passing pattern into a possession activity at a U18 elite level. But the passing pattern is just that touch and feel, get the rhythm going. Now we move straight into the possession game, which I've done a ton of before, and I can understand where pressure's coming from and how to deal with it, how to create space and time for myself, who I link with, where I link, how I link this pattern together with my fullback and my other central midfielder and my striker, whatever it may be. So we went back and forward and I shared a few articles and some evidence-based stuff with him. And over time, over time, and, and when we do have a, a bias and a belief, it's not about forcing your opinion in there, I don't believe. It's about sharing little pieces of content so that behavior and habit is molded and shaped over time into acceptance and buy-in and not doing it out of resentment. So we did make headway. Um, and and I, I do believe we found a common ground in, in my perspective and his perspective on, on those two things. Yeah, it's interesting. Obviously, the IDP type stuff when you're using um, practicing receiving techniques, etc. One thing I've used that worked quite well, which I think I, I actually stole off someone else, is just have an iPad behind them. So when they check, they then call out the dominant color that's on the iPad. So if you've yep. got YouTube or Sky or Go or whatever, just put it behind you. And then every time they check, they have to call out what the dominant color on the screen was when they saw it because then you're checking to take in information rather than just checking to check yeah um and that was a really simple thing i thought that's so, so simple but actually it works really well when you say to the kids okay you're going to do this receiving pra pra practice at home something you can practice at home that's useful do yeah. that because that will make it more realistic for you and we've had real success around that area good yeah i, th I think when in terms of IDP stuff and when you're working on your own, if you can get mum or dad or sister or brother or, or teammate to do that stuff, um, it's useful. I think in any group setting, if you can create pressure on a player and he's receiving, create it. Yeah. Because I think they're only going to get better. But I do think as part of your IDPs, that's a great point and a, and a great little addition to, to make sure the player's looking and taking information, as you say. Yeah, that's useful. So one thing you've mentioned, uh, both in terms of the product you've got now and then you growing up, was about being a late maturer. Yeah. Um, so in terms of your childhood uh, kind of playing football, etc., I guess what did that entail? When, when did you establish that you were a late maturer or did you? Um, and then I guess leading into how did you end up at Man United within the youth setup there? Sure. Um, I was physically an early maturer. And I was psychologically a late maturer, still maturing now, Michael, <laughs> if I'm being honest. Um, so I, I grew up as, a, as an early maturer, so I was able to dominate games with speed and size. So I, I had this consistent upward curve 
Um, I went to Lillishaw for the two years, you know, played for England schoolboys. I remember things like playing in front of 65,000 in the Olympic Stadium in Berlin as a 15 year old. Um, and loving every minute, not being nervous. We beat Germany, which was nice, 3-2 and um, just a great experience. And I always knew that that was that was an environment I wanted to be in. So from a from a dealing with the pressure and dealing with, um, you know, the challenges that come from being playing on TV at a young age or playing in front of big crowds and playing against good players, um, I loved it. I relished it. And that might be to do with me coming from a, a very blue collar working class neighborhood town in, called Scunthorpe. Um, you know, I, uh, I grew up quite a resilient kid. Um, you know, you, you have your challenges, um, as, as, a, as a young teenager and I kind of, I don't, I wouldn't say I always wanted to escape it, but I always wanted to, to see what's next, what's out there for me. Um, so I was keen to go to Lillishaw, managed to get through the trials and get picked as one of the 16. And from there I signed for United um, and went into United as a 16-year-old. Again, full of confidence, full of belief that I could play for this club when people were saying, why are you signing for United? Sign for a different team. You know, you'll play more games, you'll get more minutes. I didn't care. That was my club since I was five years old, even being born in Scunthorpe. Um, you know, I lived and breathed everything that was Manchester United and still do now. And um, I think my first, and this has been on a number of podcasts, one of my first really impactful moments came from cleaning showers and toilets. And, you know, the gaffer, he would always check our jobs at, at the old cliff training ground before we moved to Carrington. He would come down on a Friday afternoon down the stairs and... You know, I was on showers and toilets and he, he wanted to check that we, we'd done done our jobs properly. So this one day he comes down the stairs and he used to carry this mini cricket bat and tap it on the, the metal railings for effect. And he'd come down the stairs and he'd stick his head around the door and my, it was my turn today. So Wilson coming to me, walked down into the first team dressing room and he proceeds to run his finger through the tiles and around the back of the toilet. And guess what? I hadn't done my job properly. They weren't clean. Not in the detail he, he expected. And tries to playfully hit me with the cricket bat. Not recommended in today's society. Um, and he then grabs a hold of me and he's like, look, Wilson, if I can't trust you to do this very simple job while nobody's looking, and do it in detail. How can I trust you with my first team? You know, if I'm asking you to do something for me, it's part of the first team role responsibility and I'm, and I'm paraphrasing but I got the message and I had a choice from that point you know either go yeah gaffer whatever and carry on doing what I was doing or make sure those showers and toilets are spotless every week and that's what I did I chose to do that so as we're getting towards the why I was a late maturer psychologically I took on board those moments and took action on them because I I you know, I believed in discipline um, and I believed that as, as part of your role, you had to be disciplined. Um, that's kind of the foundation that you can always go back to uh, for performance if, if your talent's not getting you through on a particular day. So I went 
I went through my obviously my 10 game spell at Middlesbrough uh, uh, United and then decided to leave um, because I wanted more game time and went to Middlesbrough. Now, this is where the wheel started to come off for me as a player. Instead of looking inwardly, and we've just spent the whole kind of tw first 25 minutes talking about self-reflecting and being open and honest and, and humble and vulnerable. I would tend to point the finger elsewhere and say, well, why is he playing? I'm better than him. You know, I played better than him the last two games. Why is he now in the starting lineup? You know, why am I on the bench this week? Then I'd bounce down into the reserves. And instead of being a leader, instead of being a role model for the 16, 17, 18 year olds, even though I was only 21 at the time, um, I took it as a punishment. It's why am I playing in the reserves? I should be in the first team. Should be starting games. Um, I didn't deal with it well. And in the, in the end, it became detrimental to my progress, Michael. And I can look back now and honestly say, you know, I, I love my time at Middlesbrough. I love that club. But while I wasn't playing, while I was making excuses and um, not looking inwardly and, and focusing on solely me, because that's what I can control, it definitely hindered my progress in the game. To a point where I became so disillusioned, I left and and came to the MLS for two years. Do you have you been able to establish the reason why why you would look externally rather than internally initially? It's a good question, and I, I have thought about this a lot. I don't think I was authentically me my entire career. You know, I, I always felt like I needed to play up to a stereotype. You know, drive a certain car, act a certain way, live in a certain place, have a certain demeanour, because that's what professional footballers do, right? It's, it's expected of us. And I didn't have the strength of character to be authentically who I was. And that is a, a bit of a nerd. You know, I like astronomy. I like different things. I, uh, I you know, I'm a little bit reclusive at times. Um, you know, I'm, I'm lucky. I've, my wife's uh, super smart, challenges me on everything, which is brilliant for my growth and development. Um, but does it in a way where she's like, look, look at, go and read this. Go and take, you know, take a look at this book. Read this chapter. Tell me what you think. Gets the wheels turning, you know, and, I like those conversations. I start to prod and pro poke and, and challenge some of my current beliefs so that I can do one of two things, reinforce what I believe in or gain a different perspective and lens and on something else. And I didn't go through that process at all during my playing career. So where I had spells of consistency and it came later on at Boncaster when you look at my stats, because I played under a manager, funnily enough, who I probably shared more in common with than I, than I, care to believe or imagine at the time in Sean O'Driscoll, wonderful coach, um, credible manager, um, who did get me to self-reflect, who did get me to think in layers, who did challenge some of my thoughts and perceptions on the game so I could grow beyond them. Um, for the vast majority of my career, I wasn't authentic. And I, I don't, I think if you're unable to convey your authenticity in your, in your football or soccer personality, you lose a little bit of yourself. And I think over time I lost a little bit of myself and even my perception of who I wanted to be as a player and who I was. And you can see it. I went from a striker to a box-to-box -box eight to a six. 
to just making things tick. And that is that is a role I I embraced and I valued. It's a role I accepted that do your job, protect your centre backs as a six, intercepts, and then give the ball to Coppingers and Osters and Billy Sharps, who can go and win your games. Because we'll win, we'll get promoted that way. You know, we'll have a chance of winning a trophy that way. And I accepted that. But was it authentically me from thinking about myself as a 14, a 16, an 18? a 19-year-old playing at United? Probably not. It was me being adaptable and me being flexible to get longevity in the game. Do you think that the, um, the authenticity had anything to do with external pressures or external factors? Was it like when you went to Man United, you felt pressure from other people because you played for Man United? Was it the environment in terms of the people you're playing against or playing with? Is there any factors within that you think that had an effect on that? I'm pretty sure either subconsciously or consciously the external factors played a part in some of my decision-making. Um, you know, I don't think I ever recovered that complete sense of, you know, that 100% confidence from pulling on a United jersey and standing in the tunnel, especially in that era, you know, knowing that you've got an opportunity to go play in the first team or you're training with the first team. The standards were so incredibly high back then that it, it brings out a level of, of, of play and, and desire and enjoyment, even though it's highly pressurised and highly aggressive, especially back then, and demanding. Um, and a little volatile, for sure. I think of the characters that were there, keen. Scolzi, you know, Ferguson, the gaffer, it's, it was one of the most challenging, demanding, uncomfortable environments I've ever been in. And I loved every second. So for me, um, I think when I left and I went to Borough, it's our ex-Man United player, you know, England under 21 international. All of a sudden, my perception of me changed and I probably got above my station. I hadn't proved anything in the game yet. I wasn't a first team regular. Yes, I played for the, what I believe was the biggest club in the world, but I had 10 games. I hadn't established myself. And I come into another big club with the likes of Gareth Southgate and, and your Janinos and your Boxiches and your Paul Ince and Hugo Ehiog and Mark Schwartz's phenomenal group. And I expected to have my first team spot. Wrong, wrong perspective. It was, you know, it, it was um, me having a perception of myself because of how I thought people would look at me externally and what they would expect of me. That in essence elevated me above, actually, I've still got a ton of development, a ton of growth left. Where is it? How do I achieve that? What do I focus on? Who do I need for support? I wasn't brave enough. I didn't have the courage to say help. You know, how do I get better? And now I've come from United. I'm this all-rounded, well-finished, polished player at 21. Because I played 10 first-team games. And now the papers are writing things about me. And in reality, I was, I was a million miles away from that. I think it's interesting. I actually did my dissertation on um, kind of the loss of identity and footballers. Um, I did it more from a... I got released at 18 
and so from my perspective obviously I had my identity or tag or whatever kind of lost at that point where I got released and I had some friends who had the same um but it seems like for you you've obviously kind of gone from that England international Man United player to then X and it's the realignment and a reassignment of the tag that is kind of playing I guess and having some difficulties rather than focus on going actually you know what great to be a Middlesbrough first team player I can improve and I could potentially surpass being a under 21 international or playing for Man United it was kind of you always had that little x part that might have been put for you via press or programs or whatever it might be very true I mean the irony of this Michael is when I went along to Wrexham as an 18 year old I had the complete opposite perception because I hadn't been in the first team and I hadn't trained with the first team. The first question, the reporter, I think a reporter referred to me as, oh, now, you know, uh, Man United think I love you. You come and I said, you know, for me, can you, can you do me a favor? I'd rather Man United not be mentioned. Again, paraphrasing while I'm at Wrexham, I'm a Wrexham player. And I'm fully committed to this to this club for the next three months. And I was. I was a Wrexham player. I wasn't a United player. That wasn't my focal point. And it was my first taste of men's football in a, in a team that was pushing to get promoted in would it be League One. So that was my test from, from the gaffer at United. And, and it was also, you know, my first step into the professional game because I embraced it as a Wrexham player, as a part of this group of, of men, of, of, you know, this, it was generational locker room gaps for sure. So I had to learn how to navigate that piece. Um, but on the flip side, because I'd come in from United, there was an expectancy for me with inside the team to perform, especially after I, you know, I was lucky enough to score um, a goal on my debut away at Burnley. So that kind of, that set it in motion. And all of a sudden the first team was like, is this kid going to be any good? He's not been in the first team at United. You go from, okay, you know, now he can perform. We've seen it. We now, we now need to rely on him and make him a, a part of this group. So I looked at it differently and had a consistency of performances. We were so close to getting in the playoffs. We won the Welsh FA Cup. You know, I scored a, you know, Eight, eight or nine goals and it was because I embraced the challenge and wanted to be a Wrexham player for three months yet fast forward to me being sold for a million and a half quid and carrying this ego and expected you know this expectation from outside it completely skewed the perception of, of who I was and what I should have been focused on Yes, yeah, it's, it's a unique perspective. And I think that um, there's probably a lot of young players that could do with hearing that. Um, in terms of me and a personal experience, I saw Jack Rodwell play for England, I think, at under 16s. Mm -hmm. And he was the best player on both teams. Right. I, I was there to watch a friend of mine um, and he was captain. He was playing for Everton at the time. He was the best player first at both teams. And I was there as an academy player going, this kid's absolutely mustard. Like, he's going to have such a good career because he could do everything you wanted. He played at the four for a bit, then I think he went at centre-half for a bit. Athletic, aggressive, all the characteristics you want. And you look at him now, and it's kind of a similar stage where he went to Man City, and it seems like a similar 
um, path pathway. So I think it would be really interesting for you know younger players. And again, I appreciate that you that as a player you always say, "Oh, this old thing, it's not going to happen to me." But actually, it's useful information in terms of buy into it. And if you constantly look at the self awareness and growth of yourself, regardless of where you are, you're going to be on a better track. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess looking into, as you said, the Beyond Pole stuff, the first thing you said is the coach reflecting, the players having the opportunity to reflect on themselves. What are they doing in sessions and why? If you can build in that self-reflection part for everyone and not blame external factors initially and look at yourself, you're halfway there regardless of what happens in your career, positive or negative. You've got foundation in which to be able to adapt and maneuver and deal with those setbacks or challenging times possibly better for sure look i i think if you can find a way to build i would call it psychological safety so you're thinking about um the elements that that give you that psychological safety and it's if you look at characteristics so let's say leadership so you're looking at somebody who can be humble about their talent and what's expected of them they're not affected by outside influence they're vulnerable they know when to ask for help they know to support themselves with they're not embarrassed to ask for help um adaptable so you understand that under any context under any environment um you're able to adjust accordingly on and off the field so as an example of that, you, you're, you're coming into the first team, but now you're playing the first team and you're highly visible overnight on social media. Perception changes of you. Can you become adaptable now to deal with that? Um, so in terms of building psychological safety, it's important that if you're able to self-reflect younger, at a, at a younger age, and you understand what makes you you authentically and you can build processes in um, and the coach can build processes in for you to be able to convey that authenticity in, in your soccer personality in who you are so out on the field in the locker room even on social media because we have a brand if there is a process to support that within the club and you can have group sessions and you can have individual sessions. This is where sports psych, I think, is critical. But I also think it has to be intertwined with the coach so that you're both on the same page and you can understand your athletes better. All the while, you're building this different lens or these multiple different lenses for the player stepping outside themselves for a second and looking at themselves inwardly. And who am I? Where am I? Where do I want to be? How do I get there? You know? If I, if the manager, the first team manager requests that I go to training, how am I going to approach that scenario? How do I have an impact on the manager? What is it I can say or do within the first, you know, 10 minutes of interacting in that environment? How do I go into the locker room and bridge those generational gaps? How do I speak to a 30-year-old senior captain who's won multiple titles as an 18-year-old? If you can feel comfortable doing that as an 18 year old and find some common ground, it gives you confidence. It builds that safety mentally for you. And I think it can be trained. I think it can be trained within sessions. 
and Larry and I talk about this a lot. You know, we, we talk about the, the behavioral focus on training. I think you could build a curriculum out of behaviors. Forget the topics. You can coach the topic within what behaviors you want to actually coach within the practice. Um, topics important, but what behaviors underpin why you do what you do? Can you recognize them as a coach and can you recognize them as a player? So I think where, where we're going with the game, the future of the game, there's two things that are going to be critically important. One, the lines of communication from the first team head coach all the way through the entire staff to academy, to sports site, to strength and conditioning. It might be a check-in per month as a collective group. It might be once a week if you've got a manager that's really integrated into the entire player development ecosystem because it serves the first thing. Even a sporting director, because he's looking at the future value of the assets, not forgetting the human beings. So if you can, if you can create that line of communication so that every single step of the way, I know what my U14 coach thought of my now 18-year-old first team potential starter who's training with me for the first time because I spoke to my U14 coach and I spoke to the U16 coach and I understand this transition and they spoke to each other. This kid's had the resources, the experiences, the interactions all the way through his pathway to now step into the first team to feel like he can have a major impact and it can be sustainable. So that communication piece I think is critically important. Second thing is, I think there's going to be a huge focus on um, what we touched on, the behavioral focus of performance, which is obviously linked to a thought and an action first. So this is where sports site comes in. And I'll give you an example. How do I know I've had an, an impact in practice today as a, as a striker, as a U16 player? Well, we went out, we were doing an attacking topic in the final third. Scored a couple of goals, made a couple of nice runs, got on the ball a lot, feel good, great. Had an impact. Can we go a level deeper? Right, what we want or what we'd like from you as a striker is to be adaptable, aggressive, um, and dominate one-on-ones. So we dominate one-on-ones by being adaptable, aggressive, and having maybe one or two particular moves that you can refine and develop. So let's focus on adaptability in today's session. What does adaptability look like for you as a nine? When I'm playing against two centre-backs, one's tall and slow, one's short and quick. I'm not going to play against those two centre-backs the same way. Okay, so how did you score your goals? Well, actually, I decided to pull on to the quicker centre-back and then make a run across the slower one to get to the near post when the ball went down the sides of the box in high XA areas, expected chances created, whatever it is, because that's, they're the zones we know we can create most chances from. Brilliant. That's adaptability. So when I come off the field, not only can I measure how many times I got into a particular space based on our game model, I've now got an underpinning behavior that I understand rather than, yeah, I had a good game today, scored a couple of goals today, felt good on the field, made a couple of nice runs, important. But now I can say, here's my nine and here's the characteristics and behaviors that underpin this metric, this number, this amount of goals, this amount of runs, his impact in training, and now I can measure it in a game. So it's a long-winded way of saying, I think, communication and, and development of behaviours that underpin performance 
are going to be a critical piece of, of how the game evolves and moves forward from my lens, from my perspective. No, I think the behaviour ones is fascinating. And when you're talking about it now, it makes complete sense. You could have the coaches that focus on the topic. You design the session. You, you focus on what coaching points need to come out and the kids can learn those or the players can learn those as you go along. But actually, for what we explicitly tell the players, why not make it a behaviour? So for this one, it's going to be resilience. So we're going to put you in a lot of very challenging situations. Your focus for today is regardless of how challenging that situation is or a negative outcome, can we see this action or what you've got in there, adaptability? Or for the next one, it might be, you know what? We want to see real aggression from everyone in the team actually focus on those and then we'll tie in the tech and tack bits underneath because the coaches naturally are going to plan sessions that are going to challenge you in those areas anyway yeah. um i think that's a real fascinating thing it's something that i can definitely go away and look at more um which i think would be yeah would be great um, i have a ton of content i can share with you on that it's again i've, I've shared it with larry it's something i'd worked on after reading uh I read a, a research paper in the Journal of Sports Science and Coaching about two years ago, and and it it was uh, it was a group of elite level academy coaches talking about the challenges of bringing players into the first team that have not only immediate impact but have sustainability. Um, so I'll I'll share some content, and after you know probably nine or ten discussions with academy directors over here and a couple with with academy directors back home we seem to be in alignment and agreement that the behavioral aspect could actually be a piece that becomes more relevant and meaningful to a player rather than a statistic or a number or the more subjective, yeah, session was great today. I did X, Y, Z, and then go home and forget about it. If you can, if you can build a behavior around why you do what you do, um, I think it becomes more impactful. So happy to share that with you. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, I guess for you, in that time when you were going into Man United, it's obviously well mm -hmm. elaborated with the class of 92 and Eric Harrison and uh, Sir Alex Ferguson and stuff. What was the culture and environment there like? And there, is there any particular takeaways you had that thought this is what made it so elite or so performance-based? And were there any particular stories that you can highlight around that? Hmm. I think there was a constant pressure and, um, you know, there was no level of comfort. There. It was always uncomfortable, uh, especially going into training because the culture that was created was driven by the players. Yes, the gaffer had a huge impact and influence on that. He for sure did, did drive that and everybody admired and respected and looked up to him. But it also trickled down, you, you know, I think of the coaches I had the good fortune to work with, Brian Kidd, Jim Ryan, Mike Phelan, Steve McLaren, Eric Harrison. I mean, that's a blessing in itself. But they were very, um, they were very much focused on, it wasn't the, you look at the, the technical kind of insight you get today, the tactical insight you get, and, and the focus on the, the topic of the session. There wasn't any of that back then. It was all about creating the most high tempo, high intensity, challenging, competitive 
um, activities that would just push each other. And the coaches knew that it would come from within. And I don't know whether it was because it was Man United. I can't quite put my finger on it. I don't know whether it was because it was Manchester United and they were one of the biggest clubs in the world. That It was just the expectation that comes with that. But everybody spoke about the same things. It was always about standards, whether you were cleaning showers and toilets, whether you were out on the soccer field, how you carried yourself off the field, how you dressed, how you looked, everything. And it was from top to bottom, every coach was on the same page. So there was definitely an alignment in expectations for players and staff. As an example of, of highly challenging, highly competitive, if I'm being honest, Thursdays were some of the toughest games I've probably ever had in my life. Because you imagine lining up against the Keane, the Scholes, the Giggs, the Beckham, on a Thursday, you ain't going to line up against many better midfielders in the world at that time. Um, and you're also trying to remove them from their spot. And they're going, you're not going to remove me from my spot. You're young, you're up and coming, you're going to push me, but I'm hanging on to my spot. So you can imagine the, and how aggressive it, it could get in some of those games. Um, so yeah, there, there wouldn't be many free kicks called. Um, I don't think it would, I was asked this the other day, actually, by, uh, by Brian Scales up at New England Revolution. So do you think the methodology and philosophy and the environment from back when you played at United is transferable into today? I said, probably not. I said, probably not, because there were moments where it was right on the line. Of, is this a bit too, is this a bit too much? Are we close to going over that line in terms of challenges, in terms of the way we'd speak to each other, in terms of how demanding and how pressurized it was? I don't think there are many environments that could take that level of, of pressure in all contexts, um, from, from locker room conversations, from game day, um, demands from practice demands um, because ultimately if you if you weren't good enough you're out you're done if you have a bad half hour you could be done John Curtis is a prime example of that phenomenal fullback had one bad game against Overmars and never played again you know the standards were incredibly high but in, you were put under a spotlight every day and it brought about a success that, you know, it's going to be very hard to replicate for that period of time, a level of success. So uh, I just think it was a very, very unique place to be, a very volatile place to be, a very demanding, highly pressurized place to be. And if you thrived on that, and if you had the resilience and the character to deal with it, it took you to a level of performance that you might not ever find again if you go somewhere else. And I think that happens to a lot of players that leave United, especially in or left United, especially in that era. There's some unique ones like Bex, who just a phenomenal player, full stop, no matter where he went. Um, but us mere mortals, um, you know, when I think when a, a lot of players left, 
they just didn't quite find that same level of performance again. So I've got two questions off of this. Do you think for some players, particularly foreign players coming in, that environment was a real culture crash? I look at someone like Diego Forlan, for example, who came across, probably wasn't used to that style of training, play, etc. Maybe struggled to a degree at United, but then went on to have a, a, an outstanding career elsewhere. So do you think that that environment maybe culturally doesn't fit for everyone else? And then the other question is, Obviously, you had a lot of outstanding senior players in that team or whatnot. Whilst, obviously, they appreciate that you, well, that they don't want you to take their spot, mm -hmm. they also want you to be up to standard that if you need to come in, you're not going to let them down on a game day against Newcastle, Tottenham, Arsenal, whoever it might be. Was there a level of... Um, like peer-to-peer -peer improvement? Would they support the younger players with their development, et cetera? Or was it purely that being in the session, you'd get that? I think purely being in the session, you get that development. Depending on the individual, you would get support. You know, there were players that I had a better rapport with than others and, and other players that had relationships with other players that I maybe didn't. Um, yeah, the first teamers want you to push them, for sure. It's the nature of that club or any successful academy. And bearing in mind, I am referencing a period of probably my time, 96, 97, to when I left. I think the gaffer had to adapt and adjust when the likes of Ronaldo and other foreign players did come in. Although Forlan found it difficult, I'm not sure what the reason is for that. I do know... And, and I think the gaffer has references a number of times. He had to adjust his approach a little bit. It became less volatile. And, and probably, you know, look, you could also argue that Roy Keane was at the centre of that volatility sometimes. But he was a leader. And I have every respect and admiration for him for what he did for that club. He was one of the few players that could drive an entire team towards winning games after game after game after game. Relentless also showed one of the most remarkable pieces of leadership in the Juventus game, the year we won the treble. After being booked, being 2-0 down against a team that had Zidane and Del Piero and David's in it, um, he gets booked, knows he can't play in the final, and at 2-0 down, you think that's it. He went back up the other end and, and scored the first goal to bring it back to 2-1. And from there, the rest is history. He drove that entire team on. And I think that moment was pivotal. That's leadership for me. That's knowing you can't play in the final. But no, and knowing your team's 2-0 down against one of the, a team that was, you know, pegged to win it. But deciding that this club winning this trophy is bigger than you. I think that was an incredible piece of leadership that I learned from and carry with me to this day. So for all of the, the people out there that think Roy Keane might be a little selfish and self-absorbed and, you know, difficult, um, he showed some moments at United of, of true leadership. Um, and it's, it's no surprise to me that that team's success did high, you know, it revolved around him a ton because of the leader he became within that, within that club. He was, he, was a, he was hugely important to the success of the club at that time, in my opinion. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think... I just think it was such a unique place, even as, as we transitioned into that adjustment of how you could speak to players. And as more and more 
overseas players came in. It's not that the standards dropped because they continued to win trophies and make Champions League finals and won another Champions League. And the standards didn't drop. It just maybe looked different because I know from within, again, there would still be highly pressurised, high standards, you know, youth team players pushing first team players, first team players pushing each other, old guard pushing new guard. Uh, your skulls and your gigs is, you know, making sure that everybody understood what it is to be a United player, no matter what, even with new players coming in. And I think Rio referenced this when he when he came into uh, one of the rondos, the boxes for the first time and made a couple of bad passes. And Oli Gunnar Solskjaer was like, you know, 40 million, you know, gave it one of those. And that was, nobody cared what your price tag was. They only cared that you could contribute to the continued success of the club. And it's a tough school. And the last thing you want as a young player or any player is Scolzi receiving the ball, seeing you in space, knowing you've given the last two or three passes away and he turns away from you. I wouldn't want that. And that, that could be extremely damaging to your uh, confidence as a player. Which I imagine did happen at points where he's gone, listen, no chance. No chance you're not having it. No, absolutely, and it's it was a tough school. So yeah, I think what's interesting about that period, as you said, is a lot of um, interesting characters that have come out subsequently, and you hear them a little bit more on on media side, and it's always very interesting. How was it for you then transitioning to different clubs? Because I'd imagine um, the dynamics would be very different, and potentially the team leaders are very different. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I look at like uh, Middlesbrough at that time. And Janino, for me, phenomenal player, seemed like the kind of team leader within that, um, in terms of that environment. I'd imagine he'd have a very different way and very culturally very different. So how was that switching from culture for culture for player? If I'm wrong in terms of who the leader was, etc. please sure. say. Um, it was different. And, I mean, we had Paul Ince there. So when, when we went, and we also had Gareth Southgate. So they, they were two, two leaders. But again... Inti was was closer to to, to Roy in, in the sense of that type of leadership, but not as uh, intense. Um, Gareth was a he led by example, and he led by everything he did was was you know so professional. Good player as well, fantastic player, very cultural on the ball for a centre back. Um, but he, he definitely led by example. And, and he knew he knew what to say at the right time and the right words, you know, very thoughtful about about his delivery. And, you know, it's no surprise to see him as England manager now. So, you know, for sure there, there are, and funny enough, just going off on a tangent here, somebody asked me the other day, what do you take from football in terms of leadership into running a company and developing people and working with lots of different departments and growing a product? And so do, do you take that, that leadership piece from football directly into your business? And I, no, it doesn't directly transfer because the leadership within, within football, certainly during my era was, was a little aggressive. It was volatile. It was, banging on doors and walls and going out to war against other clubs. And we're now in an arguably more cultured environment where there are people from all walks of life who different things make them tick. They're inspired by, you know, 
communication and, and being respectful and you've got to get to know these people and understand what makes them tick and what are the nuances and, and give them a space and make them feel like they're empowered and they can grow and develop into whatever they want so they make your company successful um and that's where i had to learn from people like simon sinek and peter drucker and carol dweck and a whole other education for me on, on what leadership means within business funny enough that side of business tr actually transfers back into football when you read it and look at it in depth it's um i, I think there's crossover but for sure there are a ton of lessons to be learned outside of football in business in leadership that can be transferred back into into a locker room but that's a whole other podcast we can do at some other point um but in terms of in terms of leadership styles as i went to uh the mls again a different environment culturally different very diverse in texas central american south american players irish head coach who had to be very particular about how he delivered information how he how he wanted to inspire the group the team individuals and then i come to come back to England and, and to a man who was probably the catalyst for, for my coaching career and, and the main inspiration to actually Richard O'Kelly and, and Sean O'Driscoll and Sean led with a, a level of insight and curiosity and intelligence that I hadn't seen any other manager do before so everybody comes to me who's been the biggest impact on your career it's got to be McLaren or Ferguson or or Mike Phelan or Brian Kidd or you know, Howard Wilkinson. I'm like, keep going. There's a man who won't be globally recognized, but is one of the most unique and innovative coaches that I've ever played under. And his leadership style was, how can I get you to be more curious about how to improve? your performances, how to develop as a player. But I'm 28, Gaffer. Nope, you're not done. 28, nope, you're not done. Go go and sit with the analysts. And Paul Fernie actually is out in New York Red Bulls here, a good friend of mine. Come sit with Paul and, and look at your clips and, and just look at your, your clips of, in, of trying to intercept pass from fullbacks. Why? Surely there's more impactful. Th nope, I want you to look at your body shape. I want you to look at movement of, of wide players. As the, as the fullback shapes up to pass the ball into the striker. He might not be shaping up to play into the striker. Look at the angle of his, his foot, his hips. I'm like, this is detail. This is detail. If, and he's like, look, just go and look at your interest and then go and look at the set of clips where you're linking from fullback to striker or fullback back out to wide player. Look at the triangles. And he made me think about the game so differently. And if you look at my statistics... I had a level of consistency. I wasn't ripping up trees and, and lighting fires with performances. I became consistent because I understood how to be more impactful week in, week out. And I accepted my role as a six because I couldn't move as quickly as I probably once could. And I was perceived now as a six in my role. So I had to embrace it and I had to know how to refine and develop myself. And I think if I hadn't had Sean the last six years of my career it wouldn't been it wouldn't have been six years it might have been a lot less 
Um, and yeah, he, he was the catalyst for me delving into research papers on the Journal of Sports Science and Coaching and trying to come up with um, theories, ideas and practical ways to, to try and enhance the game. Sounds like a, a manager ahead of his time. And I look at a lot of the work that are, that's being done at the moment and it is along those lines. So the fact that you've got someone that doing that, you know, 15 years ago probably shows you that, you know, he was way ahead of, of what everyone was thinking and doing and whatnot. And I think one thing I find is if um, you have ex-players talk about a manager so glowingly, it shows you something about that relationship they've been able to build. And it's not always, I find, the most successful managers that are spoken about glowingly because you might get successful managers who are good for two or three years. Um, I'm going to chuck him out there in a minute. Mourinho, for example, is two or three years place to place. Whereas a lot of the ex-pros I speak to, they can attribute something to a story you've had along there. They've come across a manager who's changed them as a person yeah. and the way that they've perceived football um, and both and really enhanced them as a, a holistically not just in one facet i think you know curiosity is a gateway to intelligence and uh, i'm working on the intelligence bit but he definitely made me more curious um and that you know to this day if there's a problem to be solved if there's something i i need to learn and understand i've got to go into it in detail i need to understand every facet every nuance every barrier every challenge um, and then if I'm being honest, you probably need to fail once or twice, especially with new ideas. It's very rare that, that, that one idea or one, um, something you build or create first time off actually works and goes like clockwork. So that, that fail to learn phase, um, becomes, becomes critically important. And I think that's another thing that young players can can learn to embrace and understand you you need to fail and sometimes you need to fail fast because from that failure you understand so much about yourself and how to move beyond um, that particular challenge or set of circumstances that really does set you up for success it sounds come by our and cliched but we failed a ton of times as a company here at beyond pulse and we'll, we'll fail in the future but the learning we get from it and the adjustments we make from it um, have really set the foundations for how we're managing to to scale and generate, continue to generate success in, in the youth sports space. Listen, we could talk for hours and hours, but I'm conscious that we've come to our kind of allotted time. So I'm going to ask you one more question um, and then we'll sign off. And I'm not going to do the coaching one because I think it's pretty evident in terms of who, who's been a really effect for you. So who is the best player you've played with or against and why? Sorry for that question as well, because that's a bit of a grenade for you, I think. <laughs> I'm gonna again. I'll give you against against it would be Frank Lampard. Um, I only played against him once, but I thought he was super intelligent about the way he, he, he controlled space. He played as a midfielder, but more of a ten. So I remember watching the, the video clips, and this was for Middlesbrough. He he always played on your blind side, and as a six. You know, Chelsea played with a front two at the time. So you've got your, your front, your centre-backs occupied. 
almost your back four with the front two. And because Makaleli was such a, a safety net for them, it allowed Lampard to float. So tracking him and the timing of his runs and the cleverness of his runs, he would always find space in and around me to either get on the ball or behind me to make runs that could actually not just get beyond me, but get beyond the back four. So I found myself, you know, my head was hurting after that game because I'd never had to think so much in how to try and, you know, stop a player having a ton of success. And, and um, you know, it's no surprise he scored the amount of goals he scored. I understand why, <laughs> after playing against him, why he was able to, to just generate that return on goals for a midfielder. Super smart player, incredible player. So he was the toughest. Um Scolzi, I'm, I'm going to go for Scolzi because what a genius. Just, I don't think there's anything he can't do with a ball. And he's got that little ruthless, horrible side to him that I kind of like. But, you know, you saw it in practice and then you saw it in games, but he was a winner. He was just one of the, one of the best midfield players that's ever going to play this game. Past, present, future. Unique. And, and he had a, <laughs> had a wicked sense of humour as well just top human being incredible player and I think the only player that I ever read a quote where Xavi or Iniesta said Scolzi would, would walk into this side you know he's one of one of few players that, that could actually play in this, this greatest Barcelona team ever and they're not wrong They'll that stop. seems like that seems like a perfect answer to end on so listen Mark I really appreciate your time and um, make sure you send me that journal article because I'd be interested to read that. And as we said before, we'll stay in touch. But um, hopefully at some point we could do this again. It was a great conversation. For sure. Loved every minute and uh, great to connect with you, Michael. Thanks for having me on. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.